Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode of This Week in Photo is brought to you by Lynda.com. Learn what you want, when you want, with access to thousands of high-quality, easy-to-follow video tutorials, including many about photography. For seven days of free, unlimited, in-depth courses, visit Lynda.com slash TWIP. This week on TWIP, Julio Scurio and Dave Dugdale join Joseph Lanashki to discuss Canon opens up its cloud storage service, Irista, to the public, Instagram rolls out new features, and what 4K really means for photographers. It's Monday, June 16th, 2014, and this is TWIP. Welcome back to TWIP. Frederick Van Johnson is once again on vacation. Yeah, you heard that right. He is in Paris on a workshop with Valérie Jardin, and it says here in the show notes he's on assignment, but none of us believe it. He is partying in Paris. So I am your guest host, Joseph Lanashki, and joining me to discuss the world of photography this week are Julio Sciorio and Dave Dugdale. Welcome back to the show, guys. What have you been up to lately? Julio, let's hear from you first. Um, you know, working, working, working. Uh, <laughs> I guess that's, I guess that's not a good description. I've been shooting a lot. Um, I've been working on some educational videos about hybrid photography and I mean portraits and doing a lot of experimental, uh, photography, which I'm kind of dripping out on Instagram stuff with crazy filters and vintage glass and, you know, just having a good time, um, trying to balance, uh, all of the, the work part of photography, which is like 80, 90%. And then of course, the ten percent, which is the creation. So, that's the been my life. Photography, right? The actual photography, right? The 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 bonus. Awesome. Yeah. Tell me, tell me just very briefly about this vintage glass. What are you doing there? Uh, I'm I'm just trying to find really strange and bizarre old lenses. Um, probably I started off getting um, I got like an older Leica, which is not too bizarre, but it's cool. And then I got a, a Schneider lens, and then. Um, Recently, I got a uh, kaleidoscope lens that was built in 1981 here in Austin, believe it or not. And I've been doing kaleidoscope photography and video and 4K. It's like a real trip. It's, it's wow. been a lot of fun. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool stuff. Right on. Well, uh, how about you, Dave? What have you been up to lately? Oh, it's been all about the GH4 for the last five weeks. Uh, B&H Photo sent me a loaner, so I got to try it out. And I'm a, you know, the past four years, I've been a big Canon type person from T3Is to 5D Mark Threes, And so I finally got around, you know, people have been hounding me like, Dave, you need to review like the GH2 and then the GH3. And then I'm like, ah, oh, nah, nah. And then finally when the GH4 came out, I was like, all right, I got to try this. And I got to tell you, I'm blown away. It is such a cool little camera. It's so awesome. It, in fact, I'm, I'm to the point now where I think I'm, I'm kind of be leaving Canon and going to Panasonic. Or, actually, I sent the, the GH4 back and I didn't purchase it. I was just about to, but the A7S, the Sony, is coming out in like two weeks, I think, and they're going to send me one of those. And they'll probably send me another GH4 so I can review them side by side. But those are pretty much where I'm heading these days. I mean, it's like all about mirrorless, um, even for video. You know, I'm, a, I'm more of a video guy than a still shooter. So uh, these these mirrorless cameras are great. So I, 
We're working on a review and I'm almost done with it. I should be publishing it in a few days. It's going to be probably about 30 to 35 minutes long, this video review. Um, but definitely, uh, if you're interested in that camera, I've got tons of tests, mostly on the video side of things, but I do some stills as well. Um, so definitely uh, watch my site for it or my YouTube channel. That's awesome. And and for the audience listening, this I swear this is not planned. I did not know that Dave had just been spending so much time with the GH4. Uh, so Julio is a Panasonic, a Lumix luminary. And so he is big in promoting these cameras and knows pretty much everything there is to know about them. And one of our stories today is about the GH4. And I was expecting, Doug, that you wouldn't, uh, Dave, sorry, that you wouldn't have a whole lot to contribute to that, but clearly I was very wrong. I think I will be the one who knows almost nothing compared to the two of you. So I'm looking forward to getting to that part of the story. That's cool. Great. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Well, before we jump into the show, I'd just like to thank our sponsor for this episode of TWIP, and that sponsor is lynda.com. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A.com. You can learn what you want, when you want, with high-quality video tutorials at lynda.com. And Lynda gives you everything you need to improve your skills. Lynda offers a variety of instruction. You can learn software, creative business skills, photography techniques, web design, and more. They have over 2,000 courses and over 100,000 tutorials. They offer courses for all levels, and they add new courses each and every day. Their courses are taught by industry experts, and their instructors are accomplished professionals that are at the top of their fields and passionate about teaching. Linda's courses are high-quality video productions, and the videos are made in state-of-the-art studios. They use screenshots, narration, live action, smart boards, charts, graphics, and audio. No homemade YouTube videos here. Lynda.com courses are convenient. You can take them anytime from your computer, your tablet, or your mobile device. Each Lynda.com course is structured so that you can learn from start to finish or just jump in to find a quick answer. You can quickly search transcripts to easily find the information you're looking for. And for one low monthly price of $25, they give you unlimited access to the entire course library. You can start improving your skills with a free seven-day trial, including unlimited access, at lynda.com slash twip. Show your support for This Week in Photo at lynda.com slash twip. We thank lynda.com for their support. lynda.com. What do you want to learn today? All right, let's get into the meat of the show. So we have three stories here. The first one's pretty interesting. The second one's going to take just a few minutes, and then we're going to get to the third one, which is all about that GH4. So let's start off with the first story, which is all about Canon's new cloud-based storage service called Irista. So last week on the show, we talked about Apple's Apple's new iCloud photos uh, library service, and that was uh, you know pretty interesting. There's a lot of different players coming into the space now. We've got um, obviously we've got Dropbox and Google Drive and iCloud Drive now coming in, and then Canon comes into the mix with this, this thing called Arista. Now Arista is different in a couple of different ways. It's it's offering to store raw files from any camera, even though it is a Canon service. Doesn't matter if you're shooting with Nikon, Olympus, or anything else. They will still store your raw files, so that's good. And you can get 10 gigabytes for free, which is pretty pretty generous. That's a pretty good amount of free storage. However, once the tiers, once the paid tiers start to come in, it gets a little bit more expensive. And we'll go into a quick little comparison of the prices a little bit later in the discussion here. 
But before we get too far into those details, I just want to kind of throw it out to you guys and just with a first straight out there question, why do we even need another cloud service? I mean, how do these companies differentiate differentiate their cloud services? And is Canon doing anything interesting at all here that anybody should be paying attention to? Um, Dave, let me throw it to you first. Well, uh, I'm a little grumpy with Canon right now because, you know, they don't seem to be innovating very much on the video side of things. And especially with this GH4 that I'm working with, I'm just blown away by it. I'm like, Canon, what are you doing making something like this when you guys should be spending some R&D on better cameras? Because I don't know. I think this is kind of, I think this is geared towards newer users. Um, and I don't know, I'm a big Flickr person and they give you like one terabyte for free. Um, and this one you have to pay for, but if it's a, if it's geared after new users, which I'm guessing, you know, the person that goes to Costco and picks up a T3i and then they probably send them an email saying, Hey, sign up for our cool, you know, thing where you can upload your, your photos. You can't upload videos yet. It sounds like, but you can upload and you can upload the raw and the, the beginners, I'm thinking, the, are they really going to even know what a raw file is? Um, so I don't know. I'm I'm a little grumpy towards Canon right now, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. But it seems like kind of a ripoff, uh, the pricing on it. Uh, and I'm a big Flickr type person. And you with Flickr, you can obviously upload. Um, I don't know if you can upload raw, but you can definitely upload um, all your pictures and not even make them public. Um, and then on this, I've uploaded a few, I've tried out the service and there's a little share button next to it and you can share it to Flickr if you want. But I'm thinking, why not just put it on Flickr or Facebook to be, begin with and share sure. it that way. So I'm a little, I don't know, I, I would never use it personally. So I'm not sure what's going on with Canon. Yeah, we'll we'll get to the pricing in a moment. I was looking, I, I signed up for the service. I decided to you know do take their free 10 gigs and just sign up for it and see what the install process was like. And other than the installer crashing the first time I ran it, um, it got to a setup page that just seemed really, really convoluted. And you have to choose as the user what speed and what bandwidth and how many photos you're going to upload and all that. And it's it, all at that point right there, you've already lost most of your simple users. So if you really are targeting this at beginners, that's just overly complicated. Uh, and if you're a, a Mac user, if you're an iPhoto or Aperture user, it actually says on the load screen where you have to choose, and you do have to choose which folders on your hard drive you want it to sync. It says specifically, please do not upload your iPhoto or Aperture library. So, yeah, I'm I'm kind of at a loss as to who would use this. Um, I, I'll jump into the price comparison, but Julia, do you have any any thoughts on this? Anything that we're missing of why this is interesting? Uh, why it's interesting? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm personally looking forward to the iCloud drive. I have, I have uh, 200 gigs of uh, 200 plus gigs of Dropbox, and I've got about about 100 gigs of Google Drive, and I use them both all day long um, for different things. But the, the this Canon one, I, I think they're trying to like gather in uh, you know users that just kind of like, hey, anything Canon, I'll gobble it up. But I mean, for I mean, for anybody to look at the price, just even the price, you're just kind of like, you know. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. So let's let's hit the prices there. So you said you use Dropbox, 200 gig plan on Dropbox is twenty dollars a month. And yes. You know what? That's that's pretty good, right? I mean, that's a fair amount of money for a lot of storage in the cloud. Uh, iCloud Drive, according to the WWDC slides that they put up, 200 gigabytes is going to be four dollars a month. 
So that's a huge price difference right there. Now let's take a look at Arista, and their top plan is half that size. It's 100 gigs, and it's 11 pounds or $18 per month for half the size. So it really just doesn't seem to add up. I'm, I'm really quite confused as to what they're planning here. Another fear I have with this is kind of like a Google project for um, Canon. There'll be like a few late years later, they'll be like, ah, we're just going to get rid of the, you know, Google Reader, or we're going to get rid right. of this whole service because mm -hmm, we're, mm -hmm. we're into making cameras and we don't care about this. Meanwhile, all these people are uploading are like, hey, what happened to all my photos? Yeah. Right. I mean, can, can Canon or can camera companies stop trying to make software? You know, let the software companies make the software, let the camera companies make the cameras you know what i mean yeah uh, they're We've... just not good at it no there, there, there's I, I don't know any camera company that has software bundled with their cameras you're like oh my god i can't wait to launch this app no one gets <laughs> who who opens it i got like dozens of cameras in here i've not opened one piece of software that they come right. with they're all kind of crappy yeah. Now, we've been saying that for years on the show. Camera manufacturers, just listen to us. Please, just start making your cameras only. Make the hardware. Let other companies worry about the software. And for many manufacturers, that even includes the software on the cameras because, frankly, most of those are pretty abysmal as well. Yes. Let other companies open source it. Let third parties make interfaces for your cameras and let everybody else make software for the computers. It just doesn't make sense. And this isn't software. It's just cloud storage. But as complicated as they've made it, uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to benefit too many people at all. I just don't get it. They're like on they're like on a backwards roll with their the the, the EOS M, and now this. I'm just like you know, it it blows my mind that that there's it blows my mind. Yeah, it's surprising. Well, if, unless anybody has anything else to add to that, I think we'll just roll on to the next story. I think we've uh, pretty well all agreed that Irista <laughs> is not much worth looking at. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunate. Sorry, Canon. Uh, try harder next time, or as Dave said, just stick to the cameras. Come on, guys. You've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of catching up to do, which if you're listening, you're going to hear about in just a moment just how much work you do have to do. But before we get to that, let's talk about Instagram. So, all right, first up, you guys, Instagram users, yeah or nay? Yes. Yep. All right, cool. So three Instagram users on the panel. Um, I don't know too many people who don't use Instagram. It's frankly pretty cool, and they just made it a whole lot cooler. So its most recent update has added a big number of new features, and the two biggest ones are the ability to edit all of the major parameters of your photos, such as contrast, color, temperature, brightness, saturation, sharpness, which I was really happy to see on there, and the ability to select the strength of the filter that you choose to apply. And that's something I've been gagging for since the beginning and wanting the ability to just adjust the strength of those filters because some of the filters I thought have always been really really cool but frankly sometimes they're just a little bit too much just want to back that off a little bit so this is great um have you guys both installed the update you've been using it yep awesome well, I, yeah I'm so glad you put this in the show notes because I didn't even know about it and then I played around with it today I was like oh this is so awesome <laughs> and I I tweaked this one photo probably a little bit too much and uploaded it um to my Instagram account and yeah, I I love it. It's it's great. I could see using that far more than the actual custom filters or whatever you call them that they have um, the preset filters. I sure. think I'd be using this a lot more. And that that slide action works really well. I was really surprised. You just drag it and you you're watching where you're going and then you just lift your finger and you're like, oh, let's go on to the next setting. Yeah, love it. Yeah, it is very very cool. So. The big question on this is, do we still need all these other apps? I mean, I'm a huge user of, I love Snapseed, I love iPhoto, um, 
on on the iPhone or on the on the iPad. There's uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the app now that I use all the time that I just know what the icon looks like and can't remember the name of it, and I'm not finding it. Um, Mapbox, that's the other one. Mapbox is the other one that I'm a huge fan of that I use a lot. VSCO Cam is really cool. There's a ton of apps. I mean, literally thousands of apps out there that are so wicked cool for adjusting your photos. And I personally, a long time ago, got tired of the Instagram filters and started doing, I'd say, 90% of my photo edits outside of Instagram and then just pushing the final picture over to Instagram to share because I still love Instagram sharing. I love that you can share it to so many platforms at once from one place. With this this new version, these new features on here, these new adjustments, are you guys going to be using these other tools less, do you think? I'm not going to use the, the, the new Instagram tools more. I have not really touched them. Um, they don't work on video. If they don't work in video, I'm not really interested. Oh, know? that's interesting. I haven't even tried that. Because I get a higher quality uh, output and more control with like Lightroom Mobile or Matbox or Snapseed any of those and since I post a lot of video on Instagram they don't work I mean the basic filters work um, which I think are really cool but everything else don't work so for me it's you know I just rather I mean I'd rather do it on, on a different app that I that I like sure so okay so all these color contrast everything else those features will only work on stills they don't work on video right interesting okay well good to know very good to know Dave what about you you know going back to your question um before, I think the only time you'd ever need the other type of apps is if you wanted a different aspect ratio other than square, um, <laughs> because you could do the editing and then you could save it to your um, like iPhone direct or whatever your library. I'm sorry, I'm not a big uh, um, Mac person, but uh, that's the only time I could think of using uh, another app uh, if you wanted a different aspect ratio. But I'm really happy with it. I the, just the, the few minutes I played around with it, I'm, I could see myself going forward just using that and not using any of the filters or any other apps as long as I don't mind a, a square aspect ratio. Right. You know, I don't know if are you on Android? Uh, I'm actually on an iPhone. Oh, you are on an iPhone. Okay, so there's yeah. an app called Square Ready that you might want to check out that will allow you to take um, you know bring in your photo and kind of crop it. You basically crop it square, but to, to send to Instagram, but you can add white borders wherever you want to it. So you can take any photo, kind of pinch it, zoom it in and out on a square canvas, and then however you set it, that's what gets sent to Instagram. So you'll just have those the white background behind it. So you can send non-square. It's still a square file, but it you know appears non-square. So that, that sounds cool. What was it called again? Square ready. It's all okay. one word. Cool. Yeah, it's well. pretty cool. Little. I, I'm pretty sure it's free. If it wasn't free, it was you know all of a dollar. Um, but yeah, practically it's practically free. Practically free. Free enough. Cool. So, yeah, uh, for anybody out there who's using Instagram, if you haven't ran the update yet or you haven't noticed that it's there, dig into those new features. They're pretty awesome. Before we move on, just quickly, guys, since we've been talking about Instagram, what are your Instagram accounts? Julio, what's yours? It's uh, G Shorio. Why don't you spell that for yeah. the listeners? <laughs> right? Uh, G S C I O R I O. Awesome. Dave, what's yours? Mine's all one word, Dave Dugdale. So, you know, Dave and Dugdale spelt D-U-G-D-A-L-E. Awesome. And mine is at Photo Joseph with the P-H-O-T-O-J-O-S-E-P-H. Right on. Okay, well, let's move on to the biggest story here. 
what 4K really means for photographers. So as we said at the top of the show, our guest Julio is a Panasonic Lumix luminary. So I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about the new Lumix 4K cameras while we've got him on the show. And again, I didn't expect Dave to have so much to add to this, so I'm really excited to get into this. Uh, so Panasonic released the GH4 recently which is a $1,700 camera capable of shooting 4K video. And they also just announced the FZ10,000K. That's the 1,000. One, 1,000? One, I got an extra zero in there. <laughs> yeah. See, just, you know, names. It does say, yeah. Names. All right, anyway, FZ1,000K, <laughs> which is a $900 4K camera. So this seems to be the next forefront of digital filmmaking. Whether you're shooting weddings, commercial travel, or just about anything else, there's likely a place for video. And even if your clients don't think they want video, if you show it to them, they probably will. So first question here is, what's the difference between these two cameras? And Julie, I'm throwing this to you because you're the luminary. We've got a $1,700 GH4 and a $900 FZ1000K. Both of them are boasting 4K video. What's the difference? What are they tar- Who are they targeted to? Well, the, the main difference is the GH4 is going to have interchangeable lenses. Um, so you can use, a, 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 what is it, like 60-plus micro four-thirds lenses. It's going to have faster autofocusing, um, more robust manual and filmmaking controls. Um, it's, just, it's, just, it's everything the FC1000 does, even more so. You know what I mean? So it's, and like you're going to have a higher bit rates for the video, the larger sensor of the GH4 will give you the advantages you get with a larger sensor if you want to have more con- uh, control of your depth of field, uh, stuff like that. But I, 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 and it's aimed really at the emerging pro and in, in, in the professional. Although at the price point at seventeen hundred, it, it's really something that I think most enthusiasts uh, can get into. Um, the FZ one thousand, on the other hand, is really aimed at people that kind of want everything all in one. Uh, if you want like a really kind of like a high-end travel camera, that's an excellent camera to, to take with you because you get that giant zoom lens, hmm. which is like I think it's um, like a 28 millimeter to uh, 1,000 millimeter, something to that effect. It's it's a oh huge gosh. zoom. It's a huge zoom range, and I think it goes from like f 2.8 to f 4. Um, I don't. I'm not a big specs guy, but I believe that's what. It's pretty intense. Uh, the lens they have on there, and so like a design lens. Um, I mean, it, it's if, if you want all in one, you know you're not going to change lenses. And I think a, a lot of people don't change lenses; they buy the one kit lens, and it sure. comes on the body. The FZ1000 is awesome. I mean, man, for 900 bucks, it, <laughs> you know, what, there's nothing else in the market that's going to touch it at that price. And then on the other hand, you get the the GH4, which nothing on the market touches it at that price either. Absolutely. Okay, well, let, let's talk more about the GH4 then. So, uh, so we know what the FZ1000K is. It is a fantastic, small, portable, fixed, uh, single lens, but with an incredible zoom camera, more at the hobbyist or someone who just wants a little uh, uh, extra travel camera or something like that. So that's great. Okay, so this GH4. So the camera itself is $1,700. There's an additional $2,000 interface unit that's basically the size of the camera itself that attaches onto it. What mm-hmm. is that for, and do you need that to shoot 4K video? Well, you, you, first of all, you definitely do not need the interface unit to shoot 4K. Okay, there, there's a lot of confusion online um, when the GH4 was announced. It does the GH4 will shoot 4K directly to the card? Okay. The the interface unit is really designed for a film production set 
where you need to run video over a long length using the, um, not the XLR, the uh, HDSDI cords to say like a video village where you're going to have maybe have your director there or producer or client or all of the above. And you need, to, you need to run video over a long uh, length. And it also has a preamp built in and XLR, um, uh, I think, input and output uh, for high-end audio control. So for, for me, you know, as, as a photographer, I don't need the interface unit. Um, as a, if I was in a filmmaking where I had, a, a, I think, a team of people, I would probably take a good look at it. Okay. Okay, so basically if you're shooting family stuff, whatever, or just shooting as a single photographer, then the GH4 on its own is fine. If you're into a major production, then you may want it, but at that point, $2,000 is your breakfast catering budget, so who cares? Well, yeah, but I mean, if you think about it, and, and you know, the, the Canon, what is it, the 1DC, I think, what is it, like 10 grand, right, yeah. for the body? So you're looking at 10 Gs, you I mean, you could, you could buy, what is it, you can buy two GH4s and two interface units, right? Yeah, sure. You, you, know, you know what I mean? So it really depends on the kind of stuff you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would, wouldn't use one unless I was on a set where I needed to um, take advantage of, of those features. Another thing actually it does is that you can um, output directly to a field recorder for video and do the 10-bit uh, out right out of the, uh, the interface unit. But you can also do that with the GH4 directly out of the HDMI. Oh, you can. Okay. You certainly can. So if you're shooting just to the card and camera, so you're running gunning it, how long can you shoot on a single card given whatever the biggest card you can get in there? Is it a... Until, you, you, in, until you fill the card. Okay. So you, I mean, is that like a 30 minute run with 4K? I'm not, I don't know how big the files oh. are going to be. Can you get, um, can you shoot the 30 minute maximum that most cameras seem to have imposed on them by some strange European law that means that if it's over 29 minutes and 29 seconds, it's a film camera and they have to charge a lot more for it. Or... Yeah. If you get, if you get a big enough card, you can shoot until you, you, you know, until you don't want to shoot anymore. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Sweet. So this is a pretty sweet unit. All right, Dave, I want to throw this next one to you. Um, 4k is a ton of data. That is a lot of big picture. So is it good enough to extract stills from can you shoot video and just pull stills from that and go to print or go to the web or go wherever you're going to go um you know i would say i don't know i don't know why you'd want to do that because when i'm filming i'm usually filming either at a 50th or a second or like 125th of a second for video so you know if you're shooting at a 50th of a second and you're pulling frames from that then even you know if your model is or you're moving or your model is moving your talent or whatever for stills there's probably gonna be some motion blur in there because that's what 50th of a second is all about is to have some of that motion blur so you know okay um, well let's getting... say you're shooting sports action fast action you're shooting in full sun you're shooting with a big fast lens so you get to shoot at a really high shutter speed if you're shooting video at that and your stills are sharp enough or theoretically sharp enough can you can you pull stills out of there i you know i have and i've tested it and they look fine but the the thing i found out with the gh4 with the jpegs or or whatever you're well it's not a jpeg actually because you're going to put on your timeline and then extract um, images off of it but um I just wasn't really pleased with the actual JPEGs that were coming off the still images. The raw files looked fantastic, and I had to use that Silky app or whatever it's called because, it you know, Lightroom doesn't have the raw 
or you know adobe doesn't have that raw thing yet they do have it in the adobe labs but there seems to be some like game uh, gamma issues with it mm. but um for the most part i was like at my daughter's swim meet and i was just rattling off like i don't know 10 12 frames per second you know with stills um i don't know why you know if you're trying to catch sports action like you were describing gosh the thing shoots so fast and that depth of defocus or whatever that thing called it is is on par with my 5d mark iii it's incredible how well this thing focuses um so i would you know for a mirrorless camera that focuses is great i would just and for sports I just shoot stills, you know, like, because it can go like 12 frames per second. Wow. It's awesome. Okay. Well, Julia, I'm going to throw this back over to you then. So mm-hmm. that has always been one of the big kind of hard points against uh, mirrorless or micro four thirds or any of these technologies <clears throat> where sports is just not quite cutting it. You still, the word is you still need to have a big Canon or big Nikon if you're going to shoot the sports. Is that no longer the case? Is the GH4 really good enough to go up against the so-called big guns when it comes to fast action and fast focus? Yeah, totally. Uh, the GH4 in particular, with a Panasonic lens that's compatible with DFD, which is like the 2.8 zooms, the Noctocron, uh, I think the new 15 millimeter. it focuses almost as fast, and I would say probably the same as a, with accuracy as a as a high-end Nikon. I mean, there's a, what are those guys in Canada, the, the, the camera store, right? They did like that that kind of uh, loose test recently. I mean, you just got you got to take it out and really. Uh, if you if you if you if you're a big Nikon shooter, you want something smaller. You, you got to go out and rent the GH4, rent it with the two eight lenses. Try it for yourself. Um, but I, I say, from my experience, that yes, it definitely keeps up with those cameras. But I know the mirrorless cameras very well, so I'm I'm, I'm able to really kind of squeeze, you know, and really fine tune the settings. Um, so that I can get, uh, you know, I, I love shooting JPEGs, so I'll get a really, I can get a really good JPEG out mm-hmm. of the camera. But that's because I spent a lot of time tweaking it. Sure. Um, what, was it you, hmm? what was it you said with the lenses? If it was DSD, is that what you said? D- a DFD, depth DFD. from, yeah, depth from to focus. So that is the new, that's the Panasonic technology that allows a really, really fast autofocus. Essentially, what it does um, is it takes into consideration the bokeh pattern. It takes into consideration the hyperfocal distance um, with the given f-stop that you have set on your lens. It does all this stuff like behind the scenes, super fast, and other other stuff uh, as well. And uh, it, whereas a normal lens, it basically works strictly on contrast, where it kind of you you know you see the lenses kind of hunt when they get when they struggle for for, for focus, right? Mm-hmm. Until it finds something that's kind of contrasty, then it locks on it. With the depth from the focus technology, it knows, okay, you're at F4. So it knows, that, okay, F4, you're focused at uh, 15 feet away. So your depth of field is, say, uh, 10 feet to 5 feet or whatever. And uh, it quickly goes to that distance. And then it kind of starts to look within that distance for something that's in focus. Wow. And then, uh, and then it, so it's able to get to that really fast. That's, how, that's one of the reasons how, that they achieved this fast focus with the GH4. Now, with that said, it, you cannot get this kind of focusing accuracy and speed with other brand, other manufactured lenses, uh, so like Olympus, on the GH4. Hmm. It'll still focus very fast, but it'll focus fast, say, like a GX7 or a GH3, which to say is very quick, but if you're going to shoot sports, 
with the GH4, you, you definitely want to use the the premium uh, okay. uh, Linux lenses. Well, fair enough. The right gear for the right job. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay. Well, that's awesome. All right. Well, let's. That's great. I didn't know about that at all. So that's very very cool. Now let's one, jump one, back to talking. Sorry. One of, thing. Mm. Can I mention one thing more about the 4K? Yeah. Um, I, I, someone told me a really good example about 4K and pulling stills because I, I use it a little bit, but I kind of do. I'm really into hybrid photography and I blend stills and video, so I'm just grabbing out everything and mixing it together. But a lot of photographers aren't doing that yet. So I asked um, a friend of mine, "Is you know what do you what do you do for for 4K? I mean, are you pulling stills? Because I mean, you know the the RAW files and the JPEGs from the GH4 are definitely higher quality than a pull frame from video, even at 4K." And he told me one thing that he does because he, he likes to shoot um, uh, like storms with like the lightning and all that. Is that he'll do 4K uh, video and just let it roll with slower shutter speeds, and then he's able to and post to scrub over and get to the lightning bolt exactly how he wants it. <laughs> That's cool. So and I, I know, and I wanted to mention one other thing because you're talking about kind of darkness here. Is I compared my 5D Mark III against the GH4, and I turned off that. Um, uh, autofocus assist lamp on the GH4 to give it a com fair comparison with my D Mark III. And in the low light, it kept up with the 5D Mark III. And I mean, I like turned all the lights off basically in my living room. And I was just hunting around from close to near and far away. And it was like, it was keeping up with my 5D Mark III, no problem. It's it's great in low light too for autofocus. Wow. That's fantastic. Okay, so let's go back to talking about 4K video on here. Um, so why why <laughs> it's just a big question why right we we as a consumer market we kind of recently got everybody on to hd you know it's been what maybe half a decade and, and pretty much everybody's got hd tvs now obviously you can't even buy an sd tv anymore everybody's camera shooting hd video you can't buy a camera anymore that doesn't shoot hd video and now that we're there suddenly we're moving into 4k so what is the advantage of having this extra resolution almost nobody's got 4k tvs although we're seeing them advertised but most people don't have those so why why do we need 4k Julio, I'm going to have you start with this. Oh, you want me to start? Okay. Um, well, I, you know, as as a me as a photographer, you know, I'm, I'm mainly a stills guy, but I do do a lot of video. Like I said before, I mix together uh, my my video with my stills. For me, like when I do animated portraits, if I do shoot one in 4K, and that's typically what I'll do, um, I just get higher higher definition, more quality to work with, and I can manipulate it more in post. If I want to pull a frame. And give that to uh, to the client. They can use that online. It, it, 4K video, every frame is roughly something like eight and a half megapixels, so that's more than enough uh, for uh, putting on Instagram or Facebook <laughs> or something like that. You know, one would hope. <laughs> Are you pushing into the frame a lot? Are you if you're gonna if your final output is going to be HD? When then this is double that resolution in both directions. So if you're going to output, let's just say 1080p, then you can basically zoom into this 4K video uh, to 200% and still get a one-to-one -one pixel, give or take. Right. It's kind of like having like three angles in the same shot. That's you know? awesome. And and on top of that, I mean, hey, we all got 1080p TVs now. Uh, I have a I have a 720p actually. I <laughs> don't. My TV's kind of old. So do but, I. <laughs> but you know what? It, it, it's uh, eventually everyone's going to be getting 4K TVs, and your content will be already formatted for that already. You know, that's kind of like what 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 Red did with the Red cameras. They came out with 4K. People are like, oh, we don't need 4K. We don't want 4K. And guess what? Everybody's shot 
with early red cameras on content that's 4K, their stuff's ready to go. Yep. You know, they don't have to like, you know, uh, redo it or, you know, I mean, it's, it's good to go. Um, and, and me as a professional, I always want to have more options to offer my clients. So I'm, if I can shoot video and mix and stills and jump back and forth, um, I'm always going to do that. Well, let, let's talk about that then. Let's move into that. So 4K or not, whatever it is, you've got a camera now that shoots both video and stills. And I know you, Julio, as you just said, you're shooting a lot of both. You're mixing it up. So you're on a set shooting for a client, whatever that is, whether it's commercial or portrait or wedding, whatever the case may be. Are you going back and forth between stills and video constantly, or are you saying, right, this is a video shoot, and now let's switch into, air quotes here, uh, still photo mode, and uh, telling the client, you know, I'm shooting stills right now, and then I'm shooting video, or are you just going mixing it up all the time, not even telling them? I, I, I mix it up, and they know I'm going to do it ahead of time, whether they hire me for one or the other, they, I'm going to shoot both. Um, and I, I usually say it out loud, you know, if I'm shooting video, okay, I'm going to shoot, you know, uh, you know, roll camera action, boom. And then I go, and then I say, okay, I'm going to shoot some stills and I roll and I shoot some stills. I jump back and forth and I do it really quick. That is truly the, 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 the genius of the Lumix cameras as, as a, as a photographer, I can make my photography move, which is different from a filmmaker's uh, uh, vision. So filmmakers are going to approach something way different from a still photographer, but still photographers in a in the in a professional field, if they are not shooting video, if they're not getting into it and trying to do it from the photographer's perspective, which is different from the filmmaker's perspective, if they don't start doing that, it's like they're on a sinking ship, man, because. It's all coming together. It's already together. You have an iPhone in your pocket, right? That thing shoots video, it shoots stills, records audio, and it could display still, display a video, and broadcast audio. So if you have the device where everybody's consuming the media, right, an iPhone or an Android phone, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a professional-level camera like a GH4 that puts the power of creating high-quality content in the hands of a photographer, it wouldn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for a photographer not to take advantage of those capabilities. Mm-hmm. So, h- client hires me to shoot stills. I show them stills, and then also, hey, check this out. Here's an animated image. Uh, here's a 30 second video, and then everyone they want is an upsell. And I've already created the content. So, whether they buy it now or they buy it later, I have the content ready to go. Right. So let me ask you just from a purely technical perspective. I haven't shot myself with any of the really high-end uh, Lumix cameras or any mirrorless uh, mirrorless bodies where you can shoot both the video and the stills. I've shot with some of the smaller ones. And in my experience with those, your choices are if you set it into a video mode and you shoot stills, you can either have it shoot a low-resolution still and not interrupt the video. So you roll video, you're recording video, you push a button to record a still to capture a still, and the video keeps on rolling as if nothing happened. Or you can set it so that it does record a high-resolution still, as you would normally expect it to shoot, but the video has to pause. So basically it interrupts the video. The video stops recording, you get the still, and then the video starts recording again. Is that still what we're looking at here? On these higher-end cameras, do you get a higher-resolution still image and still have the ability to continue to roll video? Well, yeah, yeah, yes and no. Okay, so just like the, the GX7 or the GH3, with the GH4, if you want to record video at 4K and then jump over to shooting a still while you're recording video, 
you have the two options that you had mentioned. One is just shoot. Just you're basically pulling frames from that video. So you're you're pulling eight megapixel frames from video while you're recording video, and that does not interrupt the recording of the video. Secondly, is to shoot a full 16 megapixel uh, image, and at that point, just like say a GX7, the the sensor has to quickly switch gears from recording video over to using the entire the entire area of the sensor, and that pauses the video while your cap while the, the camera's shooting that that still, and then it goes back to recording video. Um, what I do. Is I have you know in the Lumix cameras you got the manual exposure video mode, and then on the control dial right next to it you got the manual exposure still mode. I kind of jump back and forth between those because if I set my exposure for still, I'm going to use the same exposure for video, and that's mainly because I'm shooting it as a still photographer. So unlike like like what what um, a filmmaker would do, like like Dave is you know he wants his nice flowing motion for video. I don't really care if I, I I don't really care to have that because I want to make moving versions of my still photos. So if I shoot a if I shoot a video, say a two fiftieth of a second, I'm okay with that because I can jump right back over and capture my stills. That so that that's how I basically operate. I'm just jumping back and forth through the entire shoot. Gotcha, Dave. Have you been playing with this with shooting video and stills at at the same time or on the same shoot and just completely mixing it up like uh, like Julio is? No, I won't. Like what you're talking about, hitting the record button, recording video, then shooting a still. I've never done that. <laughs> I, I probably could do it, but I've no, I've never done it. Are you offering video to your? Um, I'm not sure. Do you shoot professionally, or are you doing the? Um, I know you do the reviews and the videos. Do you shooting professionally as well? Yeah, I mean, I do some corporate videos here and there, um, and some other kind of like documentary promo kind of type stuff, um, but. Yeah, the, the 4K on this camera is going back to what you were asking before, you know, like what are the kind of the advantage of 4K over um, shooting 1080? In fact, I, I shoot 4K and then I publish at 1080. Um, it's nice to have 4K as a master later, like you guys were talking about. But one of the things you get is you get so much detail when you down res it to 1080 and publish at 1080. And you get one of the things that really surprised me is comparing it to 5D Mark III. At ISO 200 on both cameras, you will get less noise with a 4K image because the noise itself is getting smaller. Right. So you get a cleaner image than the 5D Mark III, um, severely cleaner at ISO 200. And, it, and one of the best things about this camera is it's doing a, like um, it's not doing any pixel binning. And I can't tell you what it's like because it's just so wonderful not to have any aliasing of moiré, and you have such a clean image coming off the sensor. And I think a lot of us kind of know what aliasing looks like or moiré, but when you take it all away and you clean it up, um, it just makes everything so much cleaner. So that's another reason right there to acquire in 4K and then down res. And then also you get slightly more dynamic range um, when you shoot 4K over 10K. It, it, uh, 1080 um it's it's very slight it's not that big of a difference but you it's just a, another added benefit and one of the things i've noticed is if you compare the all eye um compression coming off the 5d mark III, like a 30 second clip and you compare the 4k coming off the gh4 they're like the same file size because hmm. the, the they're recording in an ipb format i believe 
So you would think that, oh, I'm shooting 4K, I'm going to get more hard drives and this and that. Well, if you have a 5D Mark III, it's going to be pretty much the same. And of course, like all the great creative things you can do in post, like panning and scanning and rotating and punching in. And then like if you do um, bring it into like After Effects and you do like a warp stabilizer, well, warp stabilizers are going to pull more of your image away um, around the sides because it's got to crop in a little bit to do all that fancy warp stabilization, well, you've got plenty of real estate to crop in because it's 4K image. And yeah, as you can tell, I just, I love it. I love the camera. So you're saying thumbs up, I think? Oh, oh yeah. It's, I don't know what Canon's doing, but man, yeah. That's it's, awesome. It's, well, you, you mentioned the dynamic range in there. And so there was a story on the ESHD website recently uh, about calling out how DxO website had done a review of the GH4 and they determined that it had a 13 stops of dynamic range which was a full stop better than the 5D Mark III. Yeah, I think it was like 11.7 versus 12.8 if I'm correct. That's, I think that was the numbers I remember seeing. But insane. to me to me when I look at the both of them um cuz I have both had both cameras um I can barely see a difference. It's and it's like a perceived thing, and it de really depends how you set it up. Because the GH4, you can set up like you can boost the shadows, you can change the pedestal, you can do change the profile from a cine like D to a natural. And whereas you know the 5D Mark III doesn't have that many uh, options, um, so you could make it however you want. I mean, it's really a hard thing to nail down which one's got more dynamic range. But I would say slightly. The GH4 has the one camera that I'm really interested in in terms of dynamic range is the new Sony A7S. That should have ridiculous i think it's like rated what somebody came up with the number of 15.3 uh stops of dynamic range so oh. that's the one to really look for if you're looking for dynamic range the gh4 eh, it's okay um i'm not seeing a big difference but i'm really expecting big things from the a7s awesome well we'll be sure to get that camera on the uh, on the show to talk about soon i'm sure very cool all right, well, last thing I wanted to talk about with these, these cameras, since we are talking about 4K video, and 4K video is obviously bigger than 2K or 1080p, what you did say the file sizes are about the same, but you still have to decompress. You have the whole decoder part of this. You've got to decompress this and be able to edit it in real time. So what type of hardware and software do you need to edit this? Can you edit 4K in iMovie? I mean, that's probably a bit ridiculous, but can you edit in iMovie? Can you re edit in Final Cut? Uh, Pro 10. Can you edit in the latest Premiere? How how is that working, Julio? I'm going to uh, let you tackle this one. Okay. Um, well, so it's surprisingly easy to work with uh, the 4K footage. You know, I, I like a lot of people online. Um, before I got my GH4, I was expecting to have to go get the new Mac Pro. You know, and I was looking at that. I was like, oh God, I don't want to spend four grand on a a new computer because I got a new camera, but I, I was working with Panasonic on the, in the de development of the camera, and obviously I have to deliver and make sure that I'm you know I'm using the equipment the proper equipment. But when I, as soon as I loaded the the, the footage on my uh, my laptop, it worked out fine. And then also I have a I, so my laptop is a 2011 MacBook Pro Retina. It's got a solid state drive and eight gigs of RAM. And it runs Final Cut 10 and Premiere, and, it's, and it runs the footage fine. Um, then the second one I have is a, uh, a Mac Pro, 2010 Mac Pro, with uh, 48 gigs of RAM and a solid-state drive. And that also works 
with the with the footage well with Final Cut 10 and um, Premiere. Uh, but I'm not doing any kind of heavy compositing. I do, I'll do a little grading, and I'll do transitions, and I may add a title on top. Uh, but it works fine with that. I don't have to transcode or, or anything. I just put it in, and away I go. Typically what I'll do is I'll load, because, again, I'm shooting my video like a photographer. I load all my content in the Lightroom. I go through and make all my selects, and at the end I drag and drop from Lightroom from the library module right into Premiere. And then I'll, then I'll kind of get to work in Premiere like that, and it works fine. Um, what I did recently, actually, which kind of blew my mind, is I put some 4K footage right from the memory card. Now, now I'm sh I shoot my 4K footage in the .mp4, by the way. Uh, I don't use the MLV, but I put that right into my iPad Air, and it played the footage on my iPad Air, and that surprised me. Huh, interesting. So, wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, that's a I haven't edited, edited video on my iPad. I just, I'm not into editing video on my iPad, but... Um, it played. Yeah. <laughs> you know, That's interesting because iMovie, I mean, if you can play the video on the iPad, the iMovie should be able to edit it. I wonder what would happen there. That's interesting. Well, okay, so basically we're saying we don't need, if you're going to buy GH4, you don't have to go out and buy a brand new Mac Pro. And for those who are looking to buy the GH4 and use that as an excuse to go out and get a shiny new black Mac Pro, sorry to say, uh, sorry to disappoint, you may not need it. But if you're running that on a 2011 MacBook Pro Retina, which I believe that would be the first generation of the Retina MacBook Pro, yes. wouldn't it? Yeah. So if it can run on that, then I think that is uh, fair to say that you do not need the absolute latest and greatest. That's that's quite impressive. Love it. I think Dave was talking about it earlier, though. It had something to do with the compression, the IPB. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, and then maybe Dave has got a different uh, uh, yeah, perspective I'm a on it. I'm a Windows guy, so <laughs> well, I bu I built my own Windows machine about a year ago, knowing knowing that 4K was coming. So I built a pretty much a, a monster of a machine, and it handles it no problem when you're just you know doing simple edits and you're doing some very light grading. But as soon as you go like let's say into um, speed grade, because I'm an, uh, an Adobe type person. So you go direct link or dynamic link or whatever you want to call it out to speed grade. You, if you add like a vignette to the 4K footage and then you go back to Premiere, then you are going to drop frames. But that's the only time I've really seen it. You can do some uh, pretty heavy grading with the Lumetri effect um, and it works. <laughs> Surprisingly, I was just blown away. I was like, this is great. It works. And I'm looking at my resources and, you know, I've got a six core CPU and I've got 32 gig of RAM and I've got a, a real beefy NVIDIA graphics card and yeah, it it's it's humming along pretty good. I could see if you've got a, a slower machine, if you start adding more effects onto it, you'll probably be wanting to go buy something new. Fair enough. Awesome. Well, thanks guys. That's a, that's a huge data dump and a mind meld on the 4K <laughs> 4K video and uh, shooting with these cameras with the GH4. So uh, for anybody listening who is even mildly intrigued by that camera, I think you've got uh, most of the information you're going to need right now. So thank you very I, much. I think what's amazing, if you don't mind me saying so, is that mm -hmm. the you have a 5D Mark III, right, which is like the standard of the full-frame cameras. And it's a great SLR. I mean, I shot a 5D Mark II and a 5D Classic. They're great SLRs, uh, DSLRs. But now we have a, the 4K or the, the GH4, which has a similar dynamic range, if not more, if you read the DXO. Than the 5D3, I mean that that's really impressive. So for me as as a professional, I'm like I look at the cameras now as like okay, you can get different looks with different cameras as opposed to uh, one being 
inferior in some ways than the other. You know what I mean? It's like if you want the medium format look, you're going to get the medium format look. You know, if you want the DSLR look, you get that. And if you want a hybrid multimedia camera, you, you're definitely going to want a GH4. You know what I mean? It's um, it's impressive what Panasonic has squeezed out of that thing. It's like it still like blows my mind. Sometimes I just look at the camera and I'm like, God, they really just killed it with this thing. Yeah. Awesome. You know, they really did, yeah. Very cool. Right on. Excellent. Well, thank you again. All right, let's jump into the next part, which is the listener Q&A. So this is a segment where we answer a question that has been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. And this week's question comes to us from Shula G on our Google Plus community page. And I'm going to say right up front that I'm hoping one of you two has a really good answer for this because I frankly don't. But here we go. So Shula is looking for recommendations for a scanner for 35 millimeter and medium format negatives. I think that's going to be a big part of this. Uh, and 35 millimeter slides that gives her good resolution and doesn't break the bank. So Shula says, I have thousands of negatives and slides and would like to digitize them. I'd like to print them up to 19 by 22 inches. Any suggestions? So first off, either one of you have experience with scanners that can do medium format. Uh, I have back in the day, uh, Nikon CoolScan, <laughs> SCSI connection. <laughs> SCSI, yikes. <laughs> um, I, if you got thousands of slides. Service. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm not related to them, but Scan Cafe, I used them for all my um, my negatives uh, made about three years ago. They did an awesome job. I, I have no affiliation with them, but gosh, you've got thousands. You really want to do that work when somebody can do it for pennies, you know, per image and you don't even have to, you know, you could pick out the ones you want. Yeah. I would use something like scan cafe. I, I had a really good time with them. They, they did really good quality work. So yeah. I don't know why you want to do it yourself unless yeah. you're like, unless you're constantly shooting on film, if you can still buy it, I don't know. Uh, yeah. If, I think if you're shooting film and you, you're going to get it digitized right away, at the time of pro of, of oh, yeah. exactly, exactly. You know, I, I think I think that service sounds amazing. I mean, I, I I just can't imagine like sitting and looking at like tubs of slides, and then you got to clean them, you got to scan them, and then you got to store them, and then you got to make sure that each scan is good. You know, oh my God, if I if I had hair, I don't have <laughs> hair. If I had hair, I would I would pull it out. You know, yeah. what I mean. Um, here's yeah. one, one trick though. Well, here's a little thing that I do myself once in a while is I have a light table. Um, I throw my slides down on there. If I want to just do a quick scan, I got a uh, macro lens. I hook it up to one of my Lumix cameras, <laughs> macro lens that, throw it in Photoshop, flip it, reverse it, boom, out it goes and I'm done. Yep. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. But you can't do that for thousands of slides though. I knew. Well, you could, but that'd be the last thing you do for the year. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned this cleaning. That's a really, really important part of this. If you've got these negatives and positives that have been laying around forever and ever, uh, chances are you're going to want to clean them before they get scanned, and that's just another huge part of the headache. So, yeah, I think the the recommendation is Scan Cafe. I pulled up their web, website, and it says right there that they'd scan everything from 35 millimeter through medium format up to large format color negatives yep. so they even did some of my 110s too yep <laughs> no way really? oh yeah, yeah. Wow. yes it's 35 aps 110 126 127 medium and large format color negatives so they, they do they do a great job i yeah 
Yeah. Scan Cafe. All right, Shula, there you go. Scan Cafe. Save your money. Don't buy the hardware. Save your soul. Don't spend the next <laughs> year scanning thousands of pictures. Just ship them off and, and let it be done. There's certain things that we pay other people to do, and that's definitely one of them. Right on. Okay, let's jump into our picks of the week next. This is always fun. So remember, your pick can be anything as long as it is photography related. So, Julio, actually Dave, I'm going to let Dave go first. Julio's been up first too many times here. Dave, <laughs> go for it. What is yeah, your pick of the week? It's pretty obvious. The GH4 is, <laughs> like I said before, the, the image detail blows the door off the 5D Mark III. In fact, there's so many side-by-side -side comparisons I've done with the 5D Mark III. I would look at the GH4 and then I'd look over to the 5D and I was like, ooh, I think I got the 5D out of focus. And then I'm like, no, it's in focus. And I'm like, oh my gosh, the detail is just insane when you down-res it to 1080. And it's like I said, better dynamic range, slightly, you know, um, no, just a clean image, uh, the, no aliasing or more a, um, it's cleaner ISO 200. Sure. It's not a full frame camera, but you know, I've got a, I used a Metabone speed booster with a Nikon, uh, no, a Sigma, uh, 1.4, the new art series lens, and you can get really close, um, to a super 35. In fact, I, I compared it to a red Epic. Um, a friend of mine has one and we were doing some tests and you can get really close if you're looking for that shallow depth of field. And to be honest, you know, most movies are not shot. I don't think any are shot on a full frame like DSLR. Um, you know, the big feature films that you'll see like in this summer, they're all shot with, you know, a Super 35, which is a lot smaller than a full frame um, sensor. And Micro Four Thirds is smaller, but it's not that much smaller than the Super 35. So if for a lot of those people that are thinking, yeah, this is great and all, but it's not full frame, well, you can get pretty close to what Hollywood does with this thing with the speed booster. So that's definitely my pick of the week. Cool. Yeah, I got to admit, I before I got into Micro Four Thirds, I was a total sensor snob, and all of my <laughs> Canons are still full frame Canons, but most of them are collecting dust. I mean, they're it's pretty much all collecting dust. I think my assistant's using my gear more than I am these days, and I was I wasn't even interested in looking at Micro Four Thirds until I started using it because someone loaned me a camera, and I was absolutely blown away. I do not miss full frame, which I'm shocked to hear myself say. I'm sure three years ago me would say bite your tongue you can't say that um but that's just no longer the case <laughs> and i really think this is thing is it's not so much a game changer i think the gh4 is a brand changer like change your brand from mm -hmm. canon or nikon kind of thing yeah that kind of thing is it time to sell all the canon gear it's getting close it really is i think i have one more project i have to do where i wouldn't mind having full frame and then, yeah, I think I'm selling all my Canon glass and going either with the GH4 or the A7S. I still want to, I'm still waiting for the A7S. To, if it blows me away in terms of dynamic range, I'll probably go that way. Fair enough. Awesome. Julio, what's your pick of the week? Um, my pick of the week is a really cool workshop I'm doing uh, in uh, San Francisco with Frederick on animated portraits. So it is uh, on Thursday, July 17th at the Aperture Gallery. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a link uh, somewhere on This Week in Photo, but we're going to be going over animated portraits and just animated photography in general. So how, how is it that, that I am using my GH4 and my other Lumix cameras to be able to go into one shoot and say within 30 minutes, capture still, motion, sound, blend it together, and have a lot of the work done for me um, through automated software uh, apps that I use. So I'm sharing all the stuff that I learned um, over the course of years in doing this 
uh, to anybody that wants to attend. I think it's going to be pretty awesome. We're going to have a model there. We're going to live shoot. I'm going to show you live exactly how to do it and how to do a lot of other cool tricks like pre-processing, making cinema graphs, wireless workflow, all that stuff. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I wish I could be there for that one, but unfortunately, I won't be in the area. But awesome. Hope it's, uh, hope it's an awesome course. Alrighty, and mine is very odd. My pick of the week is something I was looking for for over a year. Ever since I moved into my studio, it was something I realized that would be very, very beneficial. And I put a little search on Craigslist, and every time one came up, it was either too expensive or too far away, um, and so I didn't buy it. But finally, recently, maybe a month or two months ago, um, I found one. And that is a used mannequin. <laughs> HOV lane. Why? <laughs> you could use it in your HOV lane. Right, exactly. What, what's well, the name? What's this, the name? It, you know, we've, we've toyed with Betty, um, uh, but I don't know if that's going to stick or not. It's, it's, it might be a little bit too Mad Men, but I kind of like Betty. So it keeps going. Around. Anyway, so why? Why in the world do I want a used mannequin? So, well, used because new ones are very, very expensive. So that's why the used. The purpose of having a mannequin in the studio for me is for setting up lighting for portraits. If I've got a portrait shoot and I'm going to set up lighting, if I'm just going to do a basic butterfly, whatever simple light, I don't you know need a stand-in. But I want to experiment. I want to play. I want to try out different lighting scenarios. And I could pay an assistant to stand there and pretend to model for me while I set up lights. But I don't want – well, first of all, I don't want to pay someone. But second, I don't want the pressure of someone standing there. I don't know about you guys, but even if someone is working for me and their job is just to stand there and stare at the camera – I feel kind of odd and guilty just playing and making tiny little tweaks and taking half an hour or an hour to adjust the lights and the reflectors and everything else. I'd rather not have a person there, but I'd still need that face. You know, I've spent plenty of time with a ladder and a color card just just stuck to the ladder, and that's what I'm focusing on. But this way, I have an actual head there. I've got hair. I've got facial features. I can play with the lighting, see how the shadows are working. And I can take my time. I can spend all day if I want to tweaking the lights. And I love it. It's just such a great thing to have in the studio. And it, I think the used one cost me about 50 bucks. So if you've got the space and you're doing playing with portraiture and you want to experiment with lighting, I highly recommend finding a used mannequin. It can be a great way to just be able to play with absolutely zero pressure and come up with new ideas. So there you go. That's awesome. A used mannequin. Who knew? And you can scare the crap out of people, too. Oh, my God. I scare the crap out of myself. I walk into the studio <laughs> before the lights are on. I'm like, ah, oh, right. That's just the man. It's just Betty. Oh, my it's God. It's just Betty. Yeah. How <laughs> funny. All righty. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of another episode of TWIP. So thanks to Lynda.com for their support. And let's tell everybody where they can find us. Julio, where can the audience find you? Um, on my website, smallcamerabigpicture.com. That's where I talk about all small cameras and doing cool stuff with small cameras. And then Twitter and G+, just put my name in, and I'll pop right up. Awesome. Dave, how about you? Uh, LearningDSLRvideo.com, and I should have that GH for review done probably in the next few days. And it's going to be a long one. But, uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm on Twitter, Google+, and all that plus, that stuff. Just put in Dave Dugdale. You'll you'll find me. Awesome. Well, by the time the show hits the uh Hits the air, then you your recording oh, yeah, may be up. True. Yeah, it yeah, might be up. Yeah, recording yeah. it a bit earlier here. So, 
There you go. Awesome. And for me, for my photography website, please go to photojoseph.com. And on the Twitters and everywhere else, it's just at photojoseph. And for the world of Aperture, of course, there is aperturexpert.com. And the same thing again on Twitter, just aperturexpert for that. Frederick Van Johnson, of course, is on frederickvan.com. You can find him there at any time. And be sure to visit our website at thisweekinphoto.com. And with that, it is time to take that lens cap off. This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production. Produced by Suzanne Llewellyn. With technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.